Four minutes, 37 seconds. That's how close Texas was from a catastrophic power grid crash. Such a crash would have left the state in the dark and wiped out cell service for weeks. While we narrowly avoided that situation, the February 2021 winter storm was still devastating. This was a, a total breakdown in Texas infrastructure. Millions of Texans were left without power in frigid temperatures. I'm honestly a firm believer that at this very moment, there are people lying dead inside homes that we still have not discovered. More than 200 people died as a result, according to the state. But a BuzzFeed News data analysis reveals that number could be more than 700. Many people died from hypothermia, including a 64-year-old San Antonio woman. Others trying to keep their families warm, poisoned by carbon monoxide. Some died when the medical equipment they relied on lost power. My uncle received a treatment three to four times a week, and it was then reduced to only twice um, due to the weather conditions. Then there's the financial fallout. We will use every other tool in our toolbox to work to get this cost down. Texans hit with shockingly high energy bills. Some utility companies forced to declare bankruptcy. Texans want to know how a winter storm could so severely impact a state that prides itself on energy production. And many are waiting to see if new laws will prevent another catastrophic power grid failure. Thanks for joining us for this special presentation, Power Grid Failure, What Went Wrong? It's been six months since Texas was hit with a winter storm unlike any we have seen in years. And in the wake of that storm, something else has been brewing. Questions about where to place the blame, if Texas will be prepared for the next winter storm, and if any changes can actually be made. But first, we want to start with a question that may very well go unanswered. How many people died as a result? The latest data from the Department of State Health Services shows that 210 people died between February 11th and March 5th. In Bear County, the state lists 14 deaths. But BuzzFeed News estimates the death toll is 702 people all across Texas. The media outlet analyzed deaths during the storm based on mortality data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is used to estimate the full death toll of COVID-19. Nieves Barrientos is one of the people whose body was discovered in her Southside home. Dylan Collier shares the story of her tragic death, one among many. These homemade shrines remind Nieves Barrientos' family of happier times. She was like helping others. Despite having a place to sleep at her daughter Avilia Aguilar's home, the 64-year-old grandmother decided to instead wait out winter storm Yuri at her own house, less than a mile away. The weather was horrible. We were going to take my mom some food because um, I would be the one taking her everything. Sadly, Barrientos became one of San Antonio's first official victims of the winter blast. Her body discovered by a family member February 16th on the kitchen floor of a Southside residence that was without power and had become so cold inside, her family had trouble feeling their hands and feet. Barrientos, according to her autopsy, was wearing five layers of clothing on her upper body at the time of her death. Her stomach and lower body covered in rashes, possibly related to exposure to the cold. The top of the list for her causes of death, hypothermia. Braguilar and her family continued reflection on the life of a loved one taken from them by the elements inside her own home. She got through so much and we never thought this was gonna take her. Her family will always question what more could have been done, a question that so many families who lost loved ones may still be asking themselves. So tonight we want to talk about what we do know to help you better understand what happened during that storm that likely left you or someone you know in the dark and in the cold. RJ Marcus explains that in early February, there were warning signs of what was headed our way. It started here. It's really gonna, I think, start spilling down the plains as we get into next week. And the question is, will some of that cold air make it all the way down into Texas? Then, days later. The cold air kind of progresses south as we get a little bit closer to the weekend, and we know the weekend will be cold. On February 11th, the Hill Country saw its first batch of freezing rain. We did see some freezing to slightly sub-freezing temperatures in parts of the Hill Country. And late Sunday night, on February 14th, 
temperatures continue to drop and heavy snow starts falling in San Antonio. Families across the city stepped outside to watch the rare South Texas snowfall, unaware that this was the start of a catastrophic weather event for the entire state. This is real snow. Sunday night and there is snow. Beautiful, like the Colorado. When Texans woke up the next morning, millions found themselves without power, including hundreds of thousands in San Antonio. That's because in the early hours of February 15th, as temperatures reached record lows, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, announced record-breaking electric demand. And while more people were cranking their heaters, the cold weather was also leading to problems with energy generators. Some of them shut down because they were overloaded, or pumped, or compressors froze up, or some other thing happened. Some of the fields that supply the gas, the, the equipment that's necessary to get the gas into the pipelines and pressurize it, froze up. There are various things that happened which limited the supply of gas at the same time we needed it most. The problem impacted all types of energy. ERCOT ended up losing more than 40% of its generation capacity during the height of the outages. We had a crisis situation and uh, ERCOT has to make those adjustments. <clears throat> Once they ran out of generation to bring online, the only choice they had was to cut off some of the load. So as most Texans slept, ERCOT instructed energy providers like CPS Energy here in San Antonio to begin rolling blackouts to protect the state's power grid. Just as some generation becomes unavailable, everybody's getting up in their homes and flipping the heat on. And uh, just as you would have with you know, adding that extra string of lights to your Christmas tree, something's going to blow. That Monday afternoon, CPS Energy says the utility circuits would continue to have rotating outages for at least another 48 hours. But it soon became clear that these weren't so much rolling blackouts as they were prolonged outages. Some people didn't lose power at all, while others would end up losing it for days. And the idea is you cut them off 30 minutes here and then cut them back on, cut them off 30 minutes over here, cut it back on and come over here. Problem with that is that didn't produce enough demand reduction across the whole state for it to work. So some of the utilities had to just cut off some circuits completely. These outages were only supposed to apply to two thirds of the grid. The other third was supposed to stay online continually because it was on an essential circuit like a hospital or a police station. By Monday night, hundreds of thousands of San Antonians had gone hours without power. And without knowing just how long these rolling blackouts would last or when they would take place, many people began to scramble for blankets, firewood, generators, anything to keep warm. We've been completely out of electricity since two o'clock in the morning. The power comes one minute and goes out one minute and goes out. We've got heavy blankets uh, wrapped in blankets, about 46 degrees inside right now. And so uh, we're just trying to stay warm. This, this is how I slept last night with another layer, Nanook of the North. The city of San Antonio finally opened the Henry B. Gonzalez Convention Center as a shelter Tuesday afternoon, more than 24 hours after the initial power outages. They offered transportation for those who couldn't get to the center safely. With Texans already dealing with a lot, another major issue pops up people across the state and San Antonio begin to lose water. The San Antonio water system reports customers are experiencing outages due to freezing pipes and power outages. Pump stations are on critical circuits, but those circuits were no longer safe from getting their power pulled. Later in the week, SAWS executive Stephen Klaus would tell KSAT that CPS Energy requested the water utility put pump stations on the rolling blackout circuit, compounding the problem citywide. When you take a large uh, a computer controlled, fairly complicated pump station offline, um, there is no big button that turns it back on. There's a series of things we have to do. So when we were losing power at our pump stations on a regular basis, it, that we just had no way that we could restart them um, and get pressure back up to people before that power was lost again. At the same time, HEB and other stores were forced to put purchase limits on items like bottled water and propane tanks in an effort to make sure customers can have access to the products they need. At this point, I'm desperate. We've boiled all the snow that we had. Many stores affected by power outages lost perishable items like milk and meat. We need groceries. We need food. How much longer it's going to last? It's just as cold as it was yesterday. And another night of this is not going to be fun. On Wednesday, SAWS issues a precautionary boil water notice for customers due to a dip in water pressure. 
On Thursday morning, ERCOT finally suspends mandated rolling blackouts and power returns to much of San Antonio. But we weren't in the clear as another round of heavy snow falls in our area throughout the day. For now, this is what we're dealing with out there. Just uh, like I said, a very surreal sight. Current conditions, snow is falling, of course. Warmer temperatures finally arrive on Friday and the area begins to thaw out. Eventually, boil water notices are lifted, roads are reopened, and the winter storm ends. But questions about the power grid and what happened are just beginning. This was a, a total breakdown in Texas infrastructure. You know, we lost power, we lost heat. We lost the fabric of society here and everything that runs our infrastructure. In a few short days during that storm that for some seemed like an eternity without power and water, millions of Texans became familiar with the name ERCOT. Before the snow and ice of that week, a lot of people had no idea what ERCOT was. Now after, most people know they're the group taking the brunt of the blame for what happened. But there was a lot more to explain when it comes to what ERCOT does and how it operates. Let's start here. Power in the U.S. is essentially divided up in three systems. Primarily, the eastern part of the United States, Texas, and then the western part of the United States. Texas stands on its own, thanks to a decision made to avoid federal regulations decades ago. Under the Federal Power Act, which was enacted in the 1930s, Congress granted the, um, the predecessor to today's Federal Energy Regulatory Commission um, jurisdiction over the transmission of electricity in interstate commerce and the sale, the wholesale sale of electricity in interstate commerce. So it's that interstate commerce piece that becomes important. We don't sell in energy into interstate commerce. We could remain our own thing and not have a bunch of federal regulation. Across the country, there are different organizations that work as nonprofits responsible for making sure the power created by generators and the supply to customers is reliably maintained. For Texas, that's ERCOT, the Energy Reliability Council of Texas. It manages the flow of power to the majority of the state, but not all, more than 26 million customers. Before we get too much deeper into our explanation, Russell said we need to understand this first. Generation of electricity must occur at exactly the same time as the consumption of electricity. So the total of everybody's electricity has to always exactly meet the level of generation. So that balancing act is a continuous thing that has to be done. And ERCOT basically has that responsibility in Texas. There's no energy storage. It has, if it's generated, it's used. That is correct. We do not have mass storage. That, that technology is under research. Let's talk about what we do have. ERCOT has multiple power sources. According to the Texas Comptroller's Office, in 2019, nearly half of the power available on the state grid was fueled by natural gas, followed by coal, wind, nuclear, and a teeny bit of solar. The state doesn't own the generation, right? Important. ERCOT owns no generation. They're just a broker. In the late 1990s, Texas lawmakers voted to deregulate the state's energy market. And why did we restructure it? Because we wanted to usher in um, choice to allow consumers to be able to choose who their provider was. So for 70% of the Texas market, we have choice. It's deregulated. That put an end to most utility monopolies in Texas. If you're thinking that you live in San Antonio and you only have one power provider choice, there's a reason why. We'll take a deeper dive after the break. Most of the state's energy market was deregulated in the late 90s. The goal was to allow customers to choose their own provider. More competition would mean lower prices. That was the idea. But experts say there is a downside to deregulation. And the winter storm revealed that. Once you give up control of all the generation, once you allow a random list of producers to buy into the Texas generation market. Um, you kind of don't have the ability to plan for and spend for these one-off kinds of events. Many of those producers of that energy were not mandated 
to have certain reliability standards. It became more or less a free-for-all. Today, a long list of companies generate power using those various sources and ERCOT buys the energy, then selling it to local utility companies. So there's a marketplace for this. ERCOT manages that. But who manages ERCOT? The Public Utility Commission of Texas has oversight of the state grid. It regulates electric, telephone and water utilities, writing and enforcing the rules utilities have to abide by. Here's where things get a little more complicated for San Antonio. Because our local utility, CPS Energy, is owned by the city, it's part of the small percentage of the Texas energy market that was exempt from the deregulation of the 90s. So no competition. CPS is your only power option in SA. And because CPS is municipally owned. CPS is a very complex uh, organization. The company wears several hats. CPS makes its power available on the statewide grid. They take back what they need and they sell the excess on the wholesale market, which ERCOT really regulates. They are the go-between between, between uh, companies that produce this power, this, this excess power, and, and its buyers, which are usually other utilities. CPS generates power, transmits it, and provides it to San Antonio customers. A portion of its revenue goes back to the city. And even though there's only one choice for power in San Antonio, Jefferson says CPS Energy still has some of the lowest rates in the state. Part of that has to do with the fact that you don't have investors who are demanding uh, dividends. Plus, they will uh, end the year with what they call a surplus. Uh, in this, you know, these funds they put back into maintenance and operations, and they, they basically will reinvest the money. But that's also how they keep rates low. Flying in the face of the theory that deregulation and competition equal lower prices. And when it comes to price, ERCOT sets prices for energy available on the grid. Prices that are subject to change during emergencies, like during the February winter storm, when ERCOT charged the maximum amount allowed for wholesale electricity, $9,000 per megawatt hour. Before the storm, prices were less than $50 per megawatt hour. ERCOT also has the authority to require utility companies to carry out rolling outages during emergencies. CPS Energy and, and every other utility in the state essentially answers to ERCOT and they coordinate to balance demand for electricity across the state with power generation just to make sure when it's really hot during the summer we have enough power to run our air conditioners and conversely during you know, a winter emergency we have enough power to heat our homes which didn't happen. Let's turn now to CPS Energy and what was going on behind closed doors in February. The KSAT 12 defenders have been pouring through more than 2,000 pages of emails trying to piece together what led up to that winter storm and what happened during. Our Dylan Collier joins us now to tell us what you've uncovered. And Myra, those emails reveal a muddled response to the deadly storm. On day three of February's bitter freeze, senior CPS leaders spent several hours drafting a letter in support of its president and CEO. We also spoke to a number of energy experts about CPS's preparations in the days before the storm. They said the utility was caught flat-footed and did not do enough to prepare for the storm for themselves or for the city. On February 10th, CPS Energy officials informed the public that an Arctic air mass headed to our area could impact the utility's infrastructure as well as the electric grid for a majority of Texas. But with the price of natural gas increasing but not yet spiking, CPS records show that same day its units of gas purchased actually went down. Multiple energy experts who spoke both on and off the record with the defenders said CPS was caught exposed, both in its long-term projections for how much fuel could be needed to heat homes and provide power to its plants, and in its energy preparations days ahead of the storm. Well, certainly there are a number of utilities and, and retail electricity providers that were not appropriately hedged. Ed Hurst is the energy fellow at the University of Houston. He says you can add CPS to the list of energy companies that failed to undertake appropriate risk management. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, they were caught flat footed. Um, I'm sure they didn't expect the market to go this way, uh, but it did. Were there protections that could have could have ameliorated this this exposure? 
Probably so. A lawsuit filed by CPS in March that accuses two natural gas providers of price gouging during the freeze shows the utility was forced to sign contracts for fuel that was marked up more than 192 times what the price had been just a few days earlier. CPS officials as recently as April said their total bills from the storm could top $1.035 billion. That figure includes the hundreds of millions of dollars spent on natural gas, as well as energy purchased through ERCOT. A source with one of the nearly 20 gas suppliers being sued by CPS told the defenders the total owed by the utility is actually much higher, since CPS also faces significant interest payments on what they owe due to non-payment. Two of those suppliers sit in court filings that CPS is trying to divert attention from its own poor risk management. Some legal experts have called the lawsuits a long shot. In May, CPS Energy CEO and President Paula Gold Williams defended the lawsuits, saying the goal is to prevent those bills from being passed on to customers. We want them to know the fight is for them. It is absolutely for them. This is a pass-through cost, but we think in principle, no San Antonian and no Texan should be required to pay price gouging. CPS has now spent over $2.5 million in outside fees for storm-related attorney and consultant work, a cost Gold Williams stands by. And the cost of um, lawyers to help us work through these things and consultants is very much a minimal part of a billion dollar bill. We're not talking that. We're trying to save the billion dollars. So you have to, you have, to have people help you fight. And even though it may be um, you know, a difficult uh, court suit, just because it is, it doesn't mean we shouldn't fight. The billion dollar bill, a nightmare scenario for the finances of a power company intensified by Texas's over-reliance on natural gas. That's according to Arash Asrari, assistant professor of engineering at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. The reserve power is expensive specifically when we rely on the natural gas. Pair CPS's dilemma to what happened to the city of Austin's public utility. According to early estimates, Austin Energy actually made more than $50 million during the storm by selling excess power. Gold Williams attributed the discrepancy of hundreds of millions of bucks to CPS's size in Austin's smaller customer base. Our community consumes much more in terms of the commodity of fuel as well as the power. Lots of people made money. Lots of people lost money. I, I'm afraid the consumer, uh, also known as the taxpayer in this state, is on the hook for uh, billions of dollars. Emails which were handed over following a records request by the defenders show that while their customers were suffering in the cold, some CPS officials were worried about something else polishing and improving the image of their president and CEO. Yeah, it was going to be used for firewood. On the third day of February's bitter freeze, still without power, Raul Villarreal took his wooden bed frame and chopped it to pieces so he could heat his home and keep his children and mother safe. That was the last resort. Internal CPS energy records from that same day, February 17th, show that Gold Williams and members of her senior leadership team were busy drafting a message in support of, well, her, touting her zest for the job and leadership. The letter was to be signed by board chair, Dr. Willis Mackey, and then released to the public. And who was driving this publicity bonanza? Turns out, Gold Williams herself, according to notes of a morning meeting compiled by her chief of staff. Just over two hours later, the utility's director of government relations forwarded a draft of the letter, warning that it would be criticized by critics, but then said regardless of that, he supported the idea to send out a statement. Just before noon, Gold Williams forwarded a version that included her comments. The body of the note describing her as, quote, passionate about serving our community, as are her hardworking leadership team members. A half hour later, CPS's Senior Director of Corporate Communications, Melissa Sorolla, included an edit. And then a half hour after that, now past 1 p.m., Chief of Staff Loretta Kerner added a change. Officials confirmed the letter was never sent telling us they instead relied on other methods during the storm, like media briefings to talk to the public. 
But the issue isn't that a letter in support of Gold Williams was written, it's the timing of when they decided to write it, according to CPS Energy trustee and San Antonio Mayor Ron Nuremberg. We'll acknowledge that there was probably morale issues happening that this was supposed to buoy, uh, but it's certainly not the right time to be doing that. Even though the message states Mackey and his fellow board members are very supportive of Gold Williams and her team, Nuremberg confirms he was not consulted on the drafting of it which took place while hundreds of thousands of CPS customers were without power. Our focus as a city and my focus as mayor during a crisis is to zero in on the work that needs to get done. Uh, we, can, we can argue about uh, the formalities later. We need to focus on getting the job done and the problem solved. During an interview with KSAT's Steve Spreester in May, Gold Williams downplayed the PR draft. Was it a mistake? Was it a mistake to draft something? We draft to talk about the PR in a time when you know people don't have power. Well, look, I think the important thing is what we know is you have to always communicate to your customers. And the comment was, are you communicating enough? And what the comment needed to be that this team was continuing to fight to make sure that we were creating stabilization. We, we draft a lot of things trying to make sure that we're communicating. I don't think it's ever a mistake to try to communicate. The thousands of pages of CPS emails also reveal the utilities at times disjointed messaging. A CPS vice president forwarding an email February 15th from someone not associated with the company that recommended they post photos of people enjoying the once in a blue moon snow to refocus the emotion. Just days after spokesman Rudy Garza proclaimed it's game time and called CPS the best utility in the country, its chief administrative officer told him he needed to be more specific about how long the outages could last when addressing the public, writing, quote, few can understand where we are on communications better than I can. The defenders also uncovered public records showing a senior director with CPS Energy trying to keep information about the power outages confidential. Utility officials contend he made the comments because of security concerns. And as you'll see later, it is far from the only information CPS has tried to keep confidential since the storm. CPS Energy faced criticism from not only its own customers, but also from its own employees. The defenders obtained internal records that showed members of its senior legal team lodged complaints against its president and CEO in the weeks before they resigned. Attorneys for the beleaguered company now believe those complaints are confidential and should remain out of public view. San Antonio Mayor Ron Nuremberg in June provided cover for embattled CPS Energy leader Paula Gold Williams. The board trustee acknowledging that he was aware of internal complaints filed against the utility's president and CEO, while at the same time ducking a question about whether those grievances warranted taking action against her. I'm not going to get into personnel issues. Earlier this summer, Chief Legal Officer Carolyn Shellman and her Deputy General Counsels, Zandra Polis and Abigail Opmers, all resigned. A combined 88 years of legal experience that walked out the door after a reported dispute over CPS's legal strategy following February's deadly winter storm. CPS has already spent millions on outside legal fees as they try and dig out from a billion dollar financial hole blamed on the winter blast. Days after utility officials said there were two sides to every story, Gold Williams refused to give hers. What were the substance of the complaints filed against you by members of your senior team before they resigned? And why won't you talk about it publicly? Because it is internal personnel matters, we wish them the very best. They made their decisions, and we are focused now on the storm. And while CPS officials, without delay, provided us records showing Polis and Otmers were paid out a combined $146,000 in accrued leave and benefits, money earned during their tenures, the utility has not been forthcoming about what they said on their way out, telling the state attorney general the information is confidential. State officials will eventually make the determination on whether that's the case. 
Shellman, Pulis, and Otmers have all not responded to requests from the defenders about their reasons for leaving CPS Energy. And our defenders' investigation uncovered other serious issues as that historic winter storm bore down on Texas last February. Many of the state's largest energy providers leaned on their own meteorologists for an outlook on how bad it would be. Gold Williams, meanwhile, said that she thought the extreme weather would be gone days before it actually departed. The thought was that Monday would be um, the, one, the worst day and that potentially by Tuesday we would be coming um, out of it. But, uh, of course, we all know that that is not the case. Our investigation found here in San Antonio, CPS Energy's level of forecasting is simply not on the same level as other major utilities. The very bitterly cold Arctic air arrived on that Sunday. When the state legislature began hearings in February into what caused the deadly power blackouts, the first person to appear before the Senate was Bob Rose, chief meteorologist for LCRA, an energy provider for parts of the Hill Country and Central Texas. He kept his company in the loop about how bad it was going to be. Management was, was very aware. Uh, you know, I communicated through email to, to a large segment of our, our organization. According to public records, Rose has more than 40 years experience in meteorology. Hey everyone, meteorologist Jen Myers here. Jen Myers, meteorologist for Encore, which provides energy to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and some of West Texas, has over a decade in that field. But at CPS Energy, it's a different story altogether. Officials confirm the utility uses a local contractor for forecasting, who appears to have been a college student at Incarnate Word for much of his tenure, or may even still be one, depending on who you talk to. He told CPS officials he graduated from UIW with a degree in meteorology in December. But a university spokesman said he was still a student and was not listed as a graduate. The vice president of weather operations for DTN, the outside vendor used by CPS, tells us the utility gets access to their weather platform, which includes services like a 14-day forecast and mapping for various severe weather events. But the VP said it's highly unlikely DTN staff spoke directly to the CPS weather contractor between February 9th and February 15th the key days leading up to the storm's arrival. There were systemic issues across the state. The real thing to keep in mind is it wasn't just a CPS energy issue. Millions of people had challenges and they didn't have power uh, for that time period. But it was something that we had never seen before in terms of thinking that we had to plan for uh, uh, five days of potentially really intense and bad weather. Invoices obtained by the defenders show the weather contractor, who refers to himself as Kid Coldfront on one social media platform, has never been paid more than $716 in a single week. CPS officials refused to say how many hours he'd worked in any given pay period. His income often dwarfed by what the utility shells out for its customized weather platform. CPS paying DTN nearly 120 grand in a single 21-month period. The utility's chief financial officer, Gary Gold, could not say why his company pays so much for weather mapping and graphics and then so little to have them analyzed. I really do not have the information to be able to answer that question for you. Criticism for CPS Energy has come in bunches over its handling of February's extreme weather event, including the hundreds of millions of dollars it paid for natural gas, bills it's now fighting in court not to pay. The utility has also been slammed for not having a licensed meteorologist on staff. I come with my own biases and prejudices. I mean, you know. Judah Cohen is a Columbia University-educated climatologist. He says companies that rely on the weather should not only have meteorologists, but would benefit from having someone with a background in weather research. When it comes to the polar vortex itself, we're not capitalizing on, on our ability to maybe predict it uh, and what the impacts are. CPS officials have told us they have a, quote, dedicated team of employees that keep an eye on the skies. If that's the case, they still haven't told us who those employees are. We aren't naming the weather contractor in an effort to keep him from facing backlash from the public. Coming up, the polar vortex and the role it played in that deadly winter blast. Our weather team explains.
We know that this winter storm had disastrous consequences that few of us have seen before. It felt unprecedented, a word that official after official has used to describe it. But was it? Meteorologist Katie Blake and Sarah Spivey put this weather event into perspective by comparing it to what we've seen in the past. When we think about the winter storm of February 2021, many of us will think about the power and water issues that we all face. However, we'll also think about the snow and just how brutally cold it was. Meteorologically speaking, the event, which spanned nearly six days, broke, set, and challenged several records. That's right, and from Valentine's Day through February 18th, areas around San Antonio saw six to eight inches of snow. The official 6.4 inches at San Antonio International Airport made the 2020 to 2021 winter the third snowiest of all. And it wasn't just the Alamo City that saw snow records. An impressive 11.2 inches of snow fell in Del Rio. That is their highest one day snowfall ever on record. Now, as far as temperatures go, it did get as cold as nine degrees Fahrenheit in San Antonio on the morning of February 15th. That's tied for the eighth coldest recorded temperature ever in the Alamo City. We also set five new record low temperatures in just one week, and that includes that nine degree day. Another notable fact about February's winter storm, it could end up being Texas's costliest weather related disaster. According to the Texas Tribune, the final tab for the winter storm could rival that of Hurricane Harvey. Hurricane Harvey in 2017 was a nearly 25 billion dollar disaster for the Texas Gulf Coast and parts of Southeast Texas. Yeah, the Texas Tribune reports that in the wake of the storm, some things still need to be added up, such as final costs for infrastructure repair all across the state. And that's a key here all across the state of Texas. There's not really a part of the Lone Star State that wasn't affected by the winter weather in some way. And that could end up being the difference when comparing this disaster to Hurricane Harvey. Harvey affected a certain region of Texas. The winter storm affected the whole state. In the weeks that followed the winter weather, some of the many questions asked included, could this happen again? And is this related to climate change? I took these questions and more to climate change expert and Texas A&M professor Andrew Dessler. I started by asking him about the polar vortex, a term that's been thrown around a lot over the past few years, and climate change. Can the winter storm be linked to these two things? Dr. Dessler says that's still up for debate. There is a hypothesis uh, that some scientists are advocating there is a connection, but I think that's still an active area of investigation. They haven't really convinced the scientific community that these are connected. Another reason Dessler was hesitant to directly connect the dots, Texas has dealt with record cold before. If you look at the historical record, we get events like this every decade or two. So we had an event like this in 2011. We had one in 1989, we had one in 1983. So, you know, cold temperatures happen in Texas every decade or two. Is this something people could see maybe again in their lifetime or a couple more times in their lifetime? Yeah, so I think that uh, I would expect these events to happen every 10 or 20 years into the near future. But um, regardless of whether it's connected to climate change or not, uh, we can expect these events to happen occasionally, and then it just becomes a question of what do we do about it? The answer, Dessler says, lies with the power grid. If we want to avoid these kind of events, the government has to come in and mandate that the grid be hardened uh, against the kinds of power outages that we, we, uh, we saw. If you had one thing that you would like people to have learned or take away from that event, what, what would it be? I think if there's one thing uh, to recognize from this is that Texas is a state where we really believe in, in doing things ourselves and getting the government out of our lives. But there are certain things, certain problems that only the government can solve. And the Valentine's Day storm showed there's this um, problem in our energy infrastructure and there's no way individuals can fix that problem themselves. As we were covering this historical winter outbreak, and as Dr. Dessler mentioned, you may have heard meteorologists mention the polar vortex. The polar vortex is a persistent normal circulation located above the Arctic. And in the wintertime, temperatures here can reach as low as 50 
degrees below zero. And every now and then the tight circulation of the polar vortex will actually weaken and that allows for frigid Arctic air to spill south into the United States. When the weakening of the polar vortex is significant enough, we'll get Arctic air here in Texas. And that is exactly what happened in February. But here's the catch and something to consider. There have been hypotheses, hypothesis that the Earth continues to warm because of climate change. And as it does so, the polar vortex may weaken more often. This would mean more frequent extreme cold outbreaks in the lower 48 and potentially in Texas. But as Dr. Dessler mentioned, the link between climate change and the polar vortex is complicated at best. Experts agree that we will see another winter storm like the one we all experienced in February and that preparing for that will require government intervention. So have lawmakers done anything? The short answer is yes. But just how effective those recently signed laws will be at preventing another power grid failure is still up for debate. Ed Hers says the problems with ERCOT's infrastructure spotlighted during February's storm are not new or partisan. Frankly, uh, this is not a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. This is the legislature. Uh, this has been an issue that's been going on for 20 years. Our grid system is broken. But this year, after the catastrophic grid failure, the 87th Texas legislature took steps to address some of those problems by passing Senate bills two and three. And in June, Governor Greg Abbott signed those bills into law. So what do these new laws do? Let's start here with Senate Bill 2. Aaron Douglas, Texas Tribune's environment reporter, explains the new law changes the makeup of ERCOT's board of directors. They took that number from 16 down to 11, and they changed the way that uh, ERCOT appoints those board of directors. Previously, ERCOT's board was appointed in a variety of ways. Some were chosen by a nominating committee. Some were appointed by electricity companies or consumers. What's going to happen now is that lawmakers um, you know, they really wanted to replace what they consider to be industry insiders um, with people who are more accountable to uh, their representatives. Moving forward, the governor, lieutenant governor, and Texas House Speaker will appoint a committee, and that committee will select the board of directors for ERCOT. To ensure the board is made up of qualified members, the committee will use a consulting firm to help make decisions. Another requirement is that, like, all of the board members have to reside in Texas. This was a point of controversy when it was revealed back in February that five of ERCOT's 16 board members did not live in Texas. They have all since resigned. You're probably wondering why out-of-staters would be hired as members of a board tasked with overseeing Texas power grid operations. Douglas says that likely has to do with the fact that one of the requirements for that job was that board members could not have conflicts of interest. Since the ERCOT market covers most of Texas, it was, I presume, difficult to get people who both resided in the state and also didn't have any touch points to the market and had all of the experience that you would want for them to be on that board. And now some are concerned ERCOT's board will be more political moving forward. What happened with Senate Bill 2 is uh, kind of a, a, a codification of the governor's ability to make it all a political appointment. Moving along now to SB 3. SB 3 is with Senate Bill 2 is uh, kind of a, a the codification of the governor's ability to make it all a political appointment. Moving along now to SB3. SB3 is going to require power companies to upgrade their plants to withstand more extreme weather. The biggest and most immediate problem February's winter storm highlighted was equipment failure. Texas power plants were not built to withstand extreme cold. So SB3 requires power plants and transmission lines to be weather. The PUC is now working on drafting those requirements and failure to comply could lead to a power company being fined up to $1 million. But even once the new rules are in place, some say there's not enough incentive for companies to comply. It actually pays us not to weatherize the generation units. A power company stands to make billions if some of the grid's power generators go offline in the event of severe cold or heat. Because when demand goes up, 
so do prices. $1 million fine when somebody's making billions is just a slap on the wrist. Another requirement of SB3, it orders the creation of a statewide emergency system to alert Texans about severe weather and possible power outages. Overall, the new laws have been met with mixed reviews. Most experts I talk to say that, you know, the SB2 and SB3 are, you know, very key pieces of legislation, but it's, you know, not going to be a uh, all-encompassing solution to the power grid crisis. And the reforms passed could take a while to fully implement. We're not ready for this August. We're not going to be ready for next February. It may take two to three years for us to get the ERCOT grid up to where it needs to be to keep Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Arizona, Tennessee, Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma from stealing business from Texas. In June, just about four months after the February disaster, ERCOT gave Texans another scare. The grid operator asked power customers to conserve energy to avoid the need for rotating outages. We later learned that some power plants unexpectedly went offline, causing the tight grid conditions. During a hearing with state lawmakers, ERCOT's interim president, Brad Jones, said the issues were related to the February freeze. Those rotating outages never happened, but the possibility didn't do any favors for Texans' faith in ERCOT. To help build back trust, ERCOT released a 60-point roadmap this summer, laying out how they plan to improve grid reliability. On that list, requiring CEOs of companies that own or operate power generators to sign a letter twice a year, attesting that their companies have weatherized equipment, updating ERCOT's website to improve communications to the public, and reviewing weatherization and emergency operation plans for generation resources. We've mentioned that several board members of ERCOT resigned in the wake of the February grid collapse, but that wasn't the only shakeup for the power grid operator. In March, its CEO, Bill Magnus, was fired. All three PUC commissioners resigned. They have all since been replaced. So what's next? Hopefully change, not only at the state level, but also on the local level as well. In June, the Emergency Preparedness Committee, formed by the mayor in the wake of the storm, released its findings on what went wrong and what needs to be improved. The committee laid out several findings in its 46-page report, describing a, quote, citywide disaster. It found the deregulation of electric power in Texas puts us at greater risk of extended power outages during a crisis. Communication was lacking between CPS Energy, SAWS, and the city. None of them anticipated the severity of the storm. The committee made more than 50 recommendations, including that the city and CPS prepare a clear and cohesive emergency communications plan. The city and CPS Energy proposed legislation to the state legislature in 2023, which includes proposing the state make the investment to connect the ERCOT grid to the eastern and western grids, eliminate the Public Utility Commission's ability to manipulate the price of power. It also recommended that CPS update its rotating outage program and shift around its circuits to make the next rotating outage response less lopsided. This map only shows outages that ERCOT mandated not uncontrolled outages. There were also recommendations for saws. The water utility should improve weatherization and emergency response equipment. Most of saws stations don't have large generators that can provide enough power to operate the large pumps moving water, according to the report. Saws Senior Vice President of Engineering and Construction talked about those challenges with KSAT during the week of that winter storm. To run a generator that can handle some of our larger pumping stations is uh, essentially the size of a locomotive engine. And the, the reason that we don't put locomotive engines out there to back everything up is because um, CPS provides a great service. They, it's very rare for us to have a loss of uh, power of this magnitude. If we lost one station, we could provide water from our other stations to that particular area. We're, we're very interconnected. But when we lose all of our stations, it's a completely different picture. And it's something that, uh, you know, in my 35-year career, I've never seen before. SAWS estimates that a system of generators for one pump station would cost about $10 million. SAWS has 80 pumping stations. The report states that there may be an opportunity for SAWS and CPS Energy to partner on a large generator that serves both of their needs. As for whether we will see an increase in our future water and energy bills, we'll have to wait and see.
Reed Williams, the committee chairman, says he worries more about our future than the cost of the storm if we don't make any changes. What I worry about is what it could cost us in the future in, in human misery and lives and, and lost opportunities. If for some reason we do lose the whole grid, uh, we've got to address this problem, uh, not only to save money out of our pockets, but save lives. CPS Energy remains in legal limbo as it fights lawsuits. Not only it has filed, but lawsuits filed against the utility. At least six families have filed wrongful death lawsuits. They claim CPS Energy contributed to the deaths of their loved ones. Other power companies and ERCOT also listed as co-defendants in some of those suits. And this is just what we know six months out. It may take a while longer to know the full extent of the damage, the cost, and the lives lost. And it could take even more time to see how local and statewide efforts to improve our grid pan out. We want to thank you for joining us for this special presentation, and we hope we gave you a better understanding of what got us to where we are today. We'll continue to follow the fallout of that snowy and icy week. But before we go, we want to leave you with some good. Amid all of the chaos, the panic, and the loss surrounding that February storm, there was some good out there. Neighbors stepping up to help neighbors in true San Antonio fashion. And we'll leave you with that. When the temperatures dropped, Pamela and Tim Allen knew they had to help their West Side community. They passed out blankets, food, and clothing to those in need. All donations that Pamela received through her nonprofit, Eagles Flight Advocacy and Outreach. Thank God that we have the means and we have the vehicle to be able to do that. And um, we have a lot of support from our community. San Antonio breweries, including Blue Star, paused production to help their neighbors. So these tanks behind me, one of them was full with purified water that we filter and is extremely safe, extremely clean. And when this happened, we had a full tank, so we were able to help the people in the community. 15-year-old Meadow Quigley, a sophomore at Construction Careers Academy, put her skills to use. After fixing a pipe that burst in her home, she offered her plumbing services to anyone who needed a minor fix. We went to Lowe's and we got like just some primer and cement from the, the plumbing section. And then we went back and we're all like, okay, we should probably wait till tomorrow because it's gonna freeze again tonight. These acts of kindness, just a few of many, a great reminder that we live in a special community. San Antonio has always been a community where people can depend on their neighbor. And um, that's when you realize how lucky you are to live in a city like San Antonio, where everybody's willing to help each other out. Um, I feel fortunate to be a San Antonian.